0: I'm going to read this so that uh, I can put it on with the sermon today. Um, This is something that somebody sent me from Brisbane, Australia. I can't give his name. But um, anyway, it says, greetings from Kalangur, Queensland, Australia, near Brisbane. Okay. This has to do with the sermons. And why do we do sermons from Leviticus? Nobody does it, right? You get life application sermons or you might get something from the New Testament, but it's rare to have people preach on Leviticus. Why do we do that? All right, I am so thankful for the series on Leviticus and particularly Charlie's comments at the opening of last week's sermon. This is two weeks ago now. Specifically, that you never hear those who want to return to Torah as a requirement for all followers of Christ enforcing these regulations. Remember, it's the one thing I've said to you, if you ever leave this church, you get mad at me and just stomp out, or if you move to another part of the country, the one thing that I would ask you to remember is never to be pushed back under the law of Moses. It's a self-condemning act. If you're saved, you're saved, but all you can do is alienate yourself from Christ. He said, my wife and I were invited to a festival of Tabernacles celebration yesterday. Speaker after speaker kept emphasizing the requirement for all Christians to return to the Torah as the only way to completely please and honor God, especially in abstinence from prohibited foods and Sabbath and other festival observance. At a suitable time, I was introduced to the host and was asked how I was enjoying the proceedings. I replied that I was interested, but could not agree with much of the theology that was presented. The host asked specifically what things bothered me, and I replied, law observance. The conversation then ensued, and I asked the question, How do you and your congregation follow the regulations and laws in Leviticus 15? Remember we went through that. It took us, what, three sermons to get through bodily discharges and leprosy? And the first response was, what's in Leviticus 15? I replied explaining the content, and the host replied, that was for a different time and place and was no longer binding. So he is now picking and choosing exactly as everybody does. Okay? He said, um, no longer binding. When I pointed out the inconsistency there, the reply was, sorry, I have got to go. (laughs) We are are starting the next session, he said. So, hmm, thanks again for your teaching and upholding the truth that is all of grace and God's mercy and by faith in the finished work of Christ that we are saved and found pleasing to God. All right, and then he ended with cheers and love in Christ. So that makes it all worthwhile. If one person is taken out of the bondage of the law because of these sermons, just one, then they were worth doing all of these. we're in our Today, we're in our 28th Leviticus sermon, right? Yeah. It is worth it for people to understand what God has done in Jesus Christ, what the purpose of the law was to begin with. All right, so we're going to go there now. We're going to go to the law of Moses. We're going to go to Leviticus chapter 16, and we're going to be in Leviticus 16, 11 through 22 today. It's entitled Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, part two. Okay? Starting in verse 11, And Aaron shall bring the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his house, and shall kill the bull as the sin offering, which is for himself. Then he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from the altar before the Lord, with his hands full of sweet incense, beaten fine, and bring it inside the veil. And he shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the testimony, lest he die. He shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side. And before the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people. Bring its blood inside the veil. Do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bull and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. So he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions for all their sins. And so he shall do for the tabernacle of meeting which remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness. There shall be no man in the tabernacle of meeting when he goes into place, make atonement in the holy place until he comes out that he may make atonement for himself, for his household and for all the assembly of Israel. And he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord, and make atonement for it, and shall take some of the blood of the bull, and some of the blood of the goat, and put it on the horns of the altar all around. Then he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times, cleanse it, and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place, the tabernacle of meeting, and the altar, he shall bring the live goat... Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to an uninhabited land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. Before I put that down, let's go and talk about exactly what that gentleman mentioned. Alright, I've done this for a reason before all of these uh, Leviticus sermons, and I'm going to continue to do it, because you never know when somebody's going to click onto a sermon and need to get proper theology, and the only place you're going to get that is directly from the Bible. So, from Leviticus 7, verse 12, for the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law, okay? I've said this week after week, I'll say it again. Who was the administrator of the priesthood under the law of Moses? Aaron, yes, okay. When we have a new priesthood, we have a new high priest. There's a necessity, a change of the priesthood and a change of the law. Who is the new high priest? Jesus. Is he of the line of Aaron? No, he descended from Judah, okay. It is impossible that he could be the administrator of the old covenant because there were already suitable priests, and they were of a different tribe, all right? So we are no longer under the law of Moses, explicitly stated, again, from verse 18 of the same chapter, for on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment, meaning the law of Moses, annulled, annulled, because of its weakness and unprofitableness. Pay attention there, because you're probably going to hear that in about five more minutes again, from chapter 8, verse 13, in that he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete obsolete means that it is no longer in effect. It is done, it is annulled, it is set aside, it is gone, it is obsolete, okay? And then we're going to go to verse chapter 10, verse 9. He takes away the first, meaning the law of Moses, that he may establish the second. You can't have two covenants going at the same time, okay? You take away the first to establish the second. It is done, it is over. And now that I've got Hebrews out of the way because most... Um, People that hold to the law of Moses, calling themselves Christians, will listen to the book of Hebrews, but they won't listen to Paul, will they? Because Paul just brings it home. But I'll take you there now anyway. Colossians 2, verse 14. Having wiped out the handwriting of the requirements, meaning the law of Moses. It's been wiped out. That was against us. It was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Okay? I've asked this before. I'll ask it again. What was nailed to the cross? Jesus' body, right? He said that the law was nailed to the cross. What does that mean? Jesus embodies the law. He is the fulfillment of it. And when he was nailed to the cross, he did what? Kept living? No, he died. Meaning the law died. Everybody got the symbolism? He embodies the law. His body died. The law died with Christ. We are in a new covenant, okay? People don't seem to want to accept that. They want to go back and they want to observe these things. And I, uh, John Haller, who does a Prophecy Update up in Ohio, would call it pietistic narcissism. It's people that say, I'm more pious than you, to the point where they become narcissistic about their pietism. All right, That is exactly what it is, pietistic narcissism. And it won't get you any closer to God. Instead, it will move you further away from him. Okay, so here we go. Like part one of the Day of Atonement sermons... For the second week in a row, I spent about 14 hours working on the content of this one today. It was a long and it was a very tiring Monday, and I didn't really feel any farther along at the end of the day than I was when I started concerning much of the substance behind these verses. In fact, right down at the very end of these verses today is when I finally came through with a mental revelation, which I desperately needed, but... Anyway, the content from the Hebrew in these verses is complicated, and you're going to see that today. It is very hard to properly piece together, and there are several possibilities for the meaning of many of these 12 verses. So much so, in fact, that I spent about an entire hour speaking to Sergio and Rhoda in Israel trying to figure out a correct meaning of just two of them. Just two of them, okay? I told them what all the scholars said. What do you say? Because you're both native Hebrew speakers, right? Two verses, probably an hour, and that was before I started analyzing them again with my fingers, okay? It was a long day. This doesn't mean that all was lost, though. In fact, at the end of the day, the opposite was true. I was 12 verses farther along in understanding everything that's being relayed, and the pictures were coming out slowly but surely. One of the problems with evaluating these verses, though, is that most commentaries, If not all, rely very heavily on later Jewish commentaries, which add in many things to the rituals of this chapter, which are completely irrelevant to what the Lord is saying. Now, we saw that in the prophecy update today. Remember I said that we had those oral traditions and they were actually included, Jesus in the New Testament saying, I'm the water of life and the oral tradition is not in the Bible. The Bible stands alone. The oral traditions are fine, but they are not scripture. We want to try to stick to scripture as much as possible, okay? These Jewish commentaries are actually completely irrelevant to what the Lord is saying. And because of this, tradition has taken over much of the basic words of instruction. Remember I held up those videos last week, wherever I put them, and I said this guy did. He was commenting on the Jewish sources all the time. Now, that's not a problem, but when you insert it into the Bible, that is a problem. If you say this is tradition and blah, 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 that's fine. I don't want to go there. In the evaluation of these Leviticus 16 verses, I am purposely refraining from any extra-biblical content such as those Jewish writings which detail the rituals in order to keep the original intent of what is being said here. The only time that I have, which I did, or I will, which I will next week, introduce anything written later is when it won't interfere with a proper evaluation of the verses. Okay? I have no problem citing something, but I don't want it to interfere with an evaluation of what we're looking at. And this is important because in using the descriptions of what occurred at Temple times and of what later writings of the Talmud state, the symbolism of what is actually being pictured here, Is confused. Error is then introduced into what should otherwise be fully understood from these verses alone. It is the constant mistake of those who evaluate such passages, and it has led to many, many misunderstandings of what is being presented for us to learn right here. This is not to say that all of these writings are bad, but there is a basic instruction which is given in Scripture which gives us all of the necessary details to find Christ. Quite often, the later writings seem to purposefully hide what we should see. What we are to find in Scripture is Jesus, and that which is recorded in the old is only given to lead us to the new. We have to keep remembering this. Everything, everything, everything points to Christ and his completion of these things. Our text verse for today is something you heard just a moment ago. It's from Hebrews chapter 7. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness, for the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. In Christ, the former commandment, meaning the law of Moses, is annulled. This is, as the author of Hebrews notes, because of its weakness and unprofitableness. That sounds very stern, but he then explains it by saying that the law made nothing perfect. Only Christ could do that. The law was given to lead us to him. That includes the Leviticus 16 Day of Atonement rituals. We just need to keep looking for him. In so doing, we will be fully informed on what we are seeing now. This is the beauty of studying the law. In doing so, we will not only find Christ, but the things of the New Testament make all the more sense. Things in the New, which seem hard to understand, find their source in the Old. In understanding the Old, we can then understand the New. This is how it is. Marvelous things are revealed when we study His superior Word. And so let's turn to that precious Word once again, and may God speak to us through His Word today, and may His glorious name ever be praised. I have three separate thoughts for you today. The first is a bull for a sin offering. It's verses 11 through 14. Verse 11. And Aaron shall bring the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his house, and shall kill the bull as the sin offering, which is for himself. Following the specific order of the ritual, the high priest is now instructed to bring forward the bull of his sin offering. The order so far is that he, one, bathed, Two, he dressed in white holy garments. Three, he presented at the door of the tent a bull for a sin offering. Four, he presented at the door of the tent two goats for a sin offering for the congregation. Five, he cast lots on the two goats, one for Jehovah and the other for Azazel. Now comes his sixth act of the day. Here it notes that this bull, which is brought near, is for himself and for his house in order to make atonement for them. This is the bull which was introduced in general in verse 6. As I said last week, the par or bull comes from the word parar, which carries the meaning of defeat or make void. The idea of Christ is clearly seen in this. It is he who defeated the devil, making void that which the devil had wrought through the sacrifice of himself. As we have seen from the earlier sacrifices noted in Leviticus, The high priest must sacrifice for himself first, and only then can he sacrifice for the sins of the people. This is stated by the author of Hebrews to make a certain theological point. Here's what he says in Hebrews chapter 5. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. Because of this, he is required as for the people, so also for himself to offer sacrifices for sins. Aaron bore his own sin, a truth highlighted in the New Testament, in order to demonstrate perfectly and completely the fallible nature of the Aaronic priesthood. If Israel's high priest bore sin, and if he continued to bear sin year after year after year, then he was never made perfect, nor could he make anyone else perfect, which is the entire point of the Bible is to make us perfect so we can again enter the presence of God. Further, none of his house was exempt. If he conceived a child just after the day of atonement, that child would still be born in sin and under sin's power the truth is inescapable. Thus, though the high priest is a type of Christ in his duties and garments, the bull being presented is also. Without the bull, there is no transfer of sin, and without Christ, there is no true atonement. As this is so, the high priest personally kills the bull. In type and in picture, all, including Israel's high priest, are responsible for the death of Jesus Christ. None can come to God apart from him. Verse 12. Then he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from the altar before the Lord. After sacrificing the bull, the next thing he is to do is take ha-machtah, or the censer, full of burning coals. Now, does anybody here have the word the in front of censer in their translation? If you do, good for them. If you don't, there's a reason why that article is there. The definite article is not superfluous at all. In verse 10 1, the two sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, committed several violations before the Lord, causing them to die. One was that they took censors that were not authorized for this purpose. Machta, or censor, comes from hatta, to take. Aaron is to take the censor, which was specifically ordained for this task and then to fill it with gachale or burning coals. This is the first time that gechel, or burning coal, is used in Scripture. It is from an unused root, meaning to glow or to kindle. Thus it is a burning ember. These were to be obtained me'al ha'mizbeach Yehovah, or from the altar before the Lord. Pretty much every commentary and scholar says that these coals are to come from the altar of burnt sacrifice, which is outside, That is the perpetually burning fire which was sanctified by the fire of the Lord at the end of chapter 9. But I disagree with that. It's much more likely that these were taken from the altar of incense which stands before the veil. The incense and the censer would both have been kept inside of the holy place. The incense was always to be burning on the coals of the fire in this golden altar according to Exodus 30 verse 8. Therefore, the fire was already sanctified to be used for incense before the Lord. Further, the same term is used again in verse 18. In both cases, it is called the altar that is before the Lord. All right, verse 12 continues. With his hands full of sweet incense, beaten fine. The words ketoret or incense and sam or fragrant are stated together in this verse. This is the special incense which was mandated for this specific purpose way back in Exodus 30. It is the holy incense which was composed of exacting ingredients and proportions which were reserved to the Lord alone. The Lord specifically stated, whoever makes anything like it to smell it, he shall be cut off from his people. Every detail of the composition of that incense pointed to the person and work of Christ. If you missed that sermon, or if you've forgotten it, then you need to go back and watch it. The symbolism of Leviticus 16 will come much more fully alive by seeing the meaning of that which is now to be burnt before the Lord. The Bible explicitly explains what incense pictures and therefore we need go no further in defining what incense means. Okay, here's what it says from Revelation 5 verse 8. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the land, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Incense pictures prayer. This is seen in both testaments of the Bible as well. As it is the prayer of the saints, and as the ingredients picture Christ and his work, it is reflective of those who are in Christ and whose prayers are made acceptable to God only because of him. In the case of the high priest now, he is instructed to have both hands filled with sweet incense beaten fine. It is not yet placed on the coals, but rather it will be after entering the most holy place. As it is beaten fine, when it is placed on the embers, it will make an immense amount of smoke. That, combined with the fact that it is in a small and completely closed room, it will literally envelop the entire room in smoke. Verse 12 continues, and bring it inside the veil. heavy mi bet la parroquette, and bring from house for veil. As I noted last week, and will repeat again. The parochet, or veil, is the dividing line between the holy place and the most holy place. Cherubim were woven into it, symbolizing the fracture between God and man which resulted at the fall. When man was removed from the presence of the Lord, cherubim were placed at the east of the garden to guard the way into the tree of life. The cherubim on the veil also likewise face east. Access has been cut off for man to dwell with the Lord or even to temporarily enter his presence. Only the high priest and only once a year could go behind this veil in order to make atonement for the people. The veil pictures Christ, the one and only means of gaining access to God. It is through him alone that this can come about. That the veil is Christ is seen explicitly in the words of Hebrews. I read this last week as well. It says in Hebrews 10, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. So he is the veil. But what did he just say in the verse before that? He said, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. So that tells you that the blood that is in the high priest's hand is also a picture of Jesus. Everything we're seeing, every single type is pointing to Christ. Verse 13, and he shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the testimony, lest he die. Once behind the veil, the high priest was then to put incense on the fire before the Lord. Almost all commentators state that this was then to prevent him from seeing the holy items and the place where the Lord dwelt, or else he would die. This is not correct. The ark was seen as it was made. It was seen by the priests as the tabernacle was taken down and raised again during its time of movement, and the high priest could obviously see the ark in the mercy seat as he walked in, prior to putting the incense on the coals. The reason for the incense is stated right here et asher yamut. And cover cloud, the incense, the mercy seat, which is over the testimony that not he die. It is the mercy seat that is over the testimony which is singled out here. In other words, the tablets of the testimony are where? They're inside of the ark. That's absolutely right. We have the Tablets in the Ark and then the Mercy Seat is above the Ark. Incense is a symbol of prayer. The Ten Commandments are representative of the entire law, a law which condemns. Only wrath can come from a violation of the law and only a satisfaction of the law through the shedding of blood of an innocent substitute can appease the wrath. The incense then is covering the Mercy Seat which covers the law, a law which brings death. In the death of the substitute... Life is granted. But when Aaron came back into the most holy place with the blood, without the incense, he would be visible. As the atonement is for him, he would die before the Lord. The incense picturing prayer is for him to be covered from the Lord, not for the Lord to be covered from him. It is the same as the Passover. The people were to do what on the evening of the Passover? They were to stay inside only the blood was to be seen, nothing else. Here's what it says in Exodus 12, verse 13. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Now think of the holiness of what's going on here. He is now coming in with blood. And if the Lord sees him, and not just the blood, his life is forfeit, because this is the moment of atonement. It's exact same symbolism as the Passover. At the time of atonement, there must only be that which provides atonement visible, The picture of Jesus Christ here is obvious. The prayers of the people who call on Christ will be saved through his death. The Lord does not see the sinner, but he hears their prayers because of Christ and because of Christ alone, symbolized by the ingredients of the incense, all of which pictured him. That's why I say it's so important to go back and watch that sermon. You'll understand that all the Lord sees is Christ. He doesn't see Aaron. He sees nothing but the blood. Verse 14, he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side. And before the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. This verse and the next verse are the ones that I spent over an hour speaking with Sergio and Rhoda about. It is very complicated Hebrew. I can tell you that right now. What is implied, but what is not specifically stated, is that he would then exit the most holy place to get the blood of the bull in order to sprinkle it before the Lord. As his hands were full of the incense, and as he was also carrying the censer with the coals, he could not have held the bull full of blood. With the blood now in his possession, he is instructed to sprinkle it with his finger. Due to the obscurity of the Hebrew, there are different views on what these words say. Some take this as two clauses with two different sprinklings. One is with his finger either on or before the mercy seat once, and then he is to sprinkle it before the mercy seat, meaning on the ground, or at least in the direction of the mercy seat, seven times, thus eight sprinklings. Some unite the two clauses, the second explaining the first. This would mean that he sprinkled only seven times at the front of the mercy seat. A third view is that he is to sprinkle it on the mercy seat seven times, and also before the mercy seat seven times, thus 14 total. This would mean that the mercy seat is considered an altar. Atonement is made for it. It's hard to be dogmatic about which is correct. At the time of the second temple, there was no ark, and therefore the priest went in and sprinkled once in the air and seven times on the ground in a line to the place where the ark would have been. I propose that the blood of atonement is made upon the mercy seat and atonement for the holy place is made with the seven sprinklings before it. First, it is sprinkled on the east side of the mercy seat. In the Bible, the east side is the place of exile and of enmity with God. Sprinkling it there is intended to appease his wrath upon those who are in this place of exile and enmity. In other words, it is a picture of Christ coming to our land of exile and shedding his blood in this place of exile to reconcile us to God once again. After that, atonement is next made for the tent of meeting by sprinkling the blood before the mercy seat seven times. Seven is the number in the Bible of spiritual perfection. The high priest would sprinkle the blood before the mercy seat to atone for the holy place. This seems correct based on verse 16. One way or another, though, the blood is specifically sprinkled on the mercy seat. This was proof of death, and it was also intended that the Lord would see the blood and atonement would be provided. As a side note, and I want everybody to understand this, the reason for the seven sprinklings has met with fanciful interpretation by some who claim that this is the number of times that Christ shed his blood during his time leading up to the cross. You'll see this post go around Facebook from time to time. That's not correct. If you read the account in the Gospels, no such analysis is borne out by the writers of the Gospels. That has to be forced in order to arrive at the number. He shed his blood when he wept. We know that, okay? He was pierced in his hands and in his feet. Do we count that as one cumulatively or two for the two hands and for the two feet or four for the four appendages? He certainly bled when he was whipped, but guess what? The Bible does not say this. He probably bled when the crown of thorns was placed on his head, but the Bible does not say that. And further, he could have bled one time with one poke of the thorn or 38 times, okay? It doesn't say anything about him bleeding. He bled internally through bruising, but that does not qualify as shed blood. In the end, we can only use what is explicit, and doing so leaves nothing which matches what is called for here. Simply, seven is the number of spiritual perfection. There is no reason to go beyond this basic and full explanation. As Christ Jesus is the embodiment of spiritual perfection, the seven sprinklings is emblematic of this innate perfection which was given for the sins of his people. They are done to petition the Lord's mercy and to acknowledge the death of the innocent substitute. An offering for sin to restore the peace. I come to petition my God at the burnt altar. Until I do, the enmity will never cease, but knowing he will forgive, in this I will not falter. At the altar and by the door of the tent, the animal is slain, its life ebbs away. In that exchange, God's wrath is spent, harmony is restored, and has come a new day. Innocent and pure, no fault of its own, the death truly touches my heart. But in this exchange, I am clearly shown that only through death can there be a new start. Thank God that another can die in my place. In his death, I can again look upon God's face. Our second thought today is the sin offering for the people, verses 15 through 19. Verse 15. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, bring its blood inside the veil, do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bull, and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. Once the high priest's sin was atoned for, the sins of the people could then be atoned for. The priest would retreat to the altar of burnt offering and there kill the people's goat offering. Once bled out, he would re-enter inside the veil to sprinkle the blood as before. Remember, the typology here is important. The high priest pictures Christ, our high priest. The goat is Christ, our substitute. The shed blood is the life of Christ poured out for his people. The veil is Christ's body, which was, according to Matthew 27 verse 51, torn asunder at the moment Christ died, thus allowing access for man into the presence of the Lord once again. For those in Christ, the guarding cherubim at the Garden of Eden, guard no more. The incense reflects Christ's nature and his qualities. For those in Christ, our prayers are made acceptable to God through him once again, The Ark is Christ who embodies the law. The mercy seat is Christ who is our propitiation. On and on, we need to remember that all detail is pointing to Christ. Here, the Hebrew says that the blood is sprinkled on and before the Ark, not only on. However, the Greek translation of the Old Testament leaves off the word and, and so once again, it's hard to be dogmatic about the sprinklings. And so you might as well just agree with what I said and press on. Once on the east side of the mercy seat, seven times on the ground for atoning for the holy place. Verse 16, so he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions for all their sins. And so he shall do for the tabernacle of meeting, which remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness. As with several other verses, This is variously translated and commented on. A large number of translations and scholars say that the two major clauses detail two separate actions. The first is that the rite has made atonement for the most holy place, and then the second clause is that he is then next to do so for the tent of meeting. If this were so, it would be very imprecise as an order. No specifics about what he is to do for the tabernacle are given. Rather, the second clause seems explanatory. The ISV translates it in this manner. It says, Then he is to make atonement on the sacred place on account of the uncleanness of the Israelis, their transgressions, and all their sins. This is how he is to act in the tent of meeting, which will remain with them in the midst of their uncleanness. The second clause explaining the first. The sprinkling of the blood is what makes atonement for the people's sins when it is on the mercy seat. It is then for the holy place, and thus for the tent of meeting as a whole, that is the seven sprinklings before the mercy seat. Okay? The people are unclean, and they require atonement because the Lord resides in the tent of meeting which is among them. Further, the very utensils and dwelling place became defiled because of the sins of the people. Annually, this uncleanness needed to be atoned for. Now, if you have a headache right now, if you're saying, I just don't understand at all what's being described, think about me 10 weeks ago on Monday morning, 10 hours, actually, I'm sorry, 14 hours doing this. These are very, very complicated verses. And scholars that have been trained in Hebrew and Greek, like I never will be, come up with completely different conclusions. But this is the most important part of the entire book of Leviticus because it details what God did in Christ. And that's why going through this word by word, and then analyzing it in relation to the entire chapter is most important. And in the end, I feel convinced that the analysis that I'm giving you is correct. Once on the mercy seat on the east side, seven times, that seven sprinklings is for the tent of meeting. Verse 17, there shall be no man in the tabernacle of meeting when he goes in to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out that he may make atonement for himself, for his household, and for all the assembly of Israel. The reasons for this here should be obvious. First, only the priests could enter into the tent of meeting, but even they were considered defiled. And so only one representative for them could go in and out with these required sacrifices. Their impure presence would nullify the rite which was being accomplished. Secondly... As the high priest went in and out of the most holy place, anyone in the holy place could look behind the veil as he went in and out. This was absolutely forbidden. And thirdly, it is typical of the work of Christ being the only acceptable work for atonement and mediation before God. No works of any person nor any mediation by anyone else is acceptable for bringing us near to God once again. So much for those people in Australia that are trying to earn their way to heaven by observing the law. They can't do it. And it's seen right in this picture here. And so much for prayers to Mary, to Peter, and to the saints. It's not going to work. There is one mediator, there is one that does the work, and it is all Jesus. We are excluded from this equation 100%. On any day, even on this most holy day of atonement, this place where the Lord resided, which is in type heaven itself, was shut up from the eyes and physical access of man. This is explained in the book of Hebrews. The Holy Spirit indicating this that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. That's Hebrews 9 verse 8. Only in Christ could entrance into the true place where the Lord resides be made manifest. It is through him that access for his people is made possible. Thank God for Jesus Christ. Verse 18, And he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it, and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. Scholars are divided 50-50 on whether this is speaking of the golden altar of incense or the altar of burnt offering. Each gives very convincing reasons for one or the other based on the chronology of events which take place in this account. But only one is correct. I go with the golden altar. First, it was specifically stated that this altar, and I'm talking about the altar of incense, which stands right before the veil, okay? That was specifically said to be required to be atoned for on the day of atonement. That's recorded in Exodus 30, verse 10. It says, And Aaron shall make atonement upon its horns once a year with the blood of the sin offering of atonement. Once a year he shall make atonement upon it throughout your generations it is most holy to the Lord. Secondly, no such required atonement was specified for the altar of burnt offering except during the ordination of the priests. Okay, that's the only time that that was needed. And so the general atonement made for the tent of meeting also atoned for it. That's the seven sprinklings. It atoned for everything the tent of meeting, the altar of burnt sacrifice, everything. Thirdly, It is because of what the golden altar of incense does that this was necessary. It is the one channel between the Lord and his people each day as the incense reflecting the prayers of the people would waft through the veil and into the most holy place. And fourthly, the altar of burnt offering was for the sacrifices of the people at all times, but no burnt grain or drink offering was ever to be made upon the golden altar. Thus, atonement for the sin on this offering was required. There is the inescapable truth that both the blood of the bull and the blood of the goat were mixed together in one application. Remember, it just said that takes the blood of the bull and the blood of the goat and they mix it together. For atonement to be made before the Lord, Aaron had to sacrifice for himself. Then for the people, another sacrifice was made. But in the mingling of the blood of both, we see that each individual sacrifice only points to one true sacrifice. Both priest and commoner required Christ. The sacrifices are made in a sequence in type and picture, but in reality, they are one sacrifice made one time in the death of Christ. This acknowledgment of the death of Christ, the blood of these two animals, was on the horns of the altar, thus making atonement for it. The prayers of the people were considered acceptable only because of the death of Christ. It is his death which allows our prayers, sinful as they may be, to be accepted by God. It is an astonishing thing to consider that even the prayers of man are deemed so sinful that God cannot hear them apart from Jesus Christ. And I've said this many times. You know, it says in the Old Testament, the Lord does not hear your prayers because your sins have separated you from him. And I've said that only the prayers of saved believers ever reach the ears of God, ever. No person on this planet that prays to God is heard by God. Nobody. Now, that may sound cold and indifferent, but that is what the Bible reveals right here. Now, they may pray for something and it may happen, but that doesn't mean that God heard it. It means that it life in general came about. I pray that I get that beautiful woman and he ends up marrying her. Prayer answered. Well, no. It's the time and chance happened for you. God does not hear the prayers of people apart from Jesus Christ. And it's pictured right here in this particular thing. And the only reason why he hears our prayers is because of him. Now, having said that, there is one prayer that a non-saved believer can say that God will hear. What is it? I believe in Jesus. I accept and receive Jesus. And that prayer goes immediately to the ears of God. Apart from that, prayers are not heard by God. All pictured right here. Verse 19. Then he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times, cleanse it, and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. The sevenfold sprinkling is, like all other times, that which signifies spiritual perfection. It is emblematic of the spiritually full and complete atonement, which Christ's shed blood provides. What is most notable here is that just after the death of the bull, the bringing in of incense was the first thing accomplished in order to begin the atonement process. Now, atoning for the altar of incense with the blood of the bull and the goat is again the last part of the process. As incense signifies prayer, It's a remarkable attestation to the importance of prayer to God. Prayers in Christ cover us, and at the same time, they reveal us. In type, as we saw in Exodus 30, the altar of incense is tied directly both to the Ark of the Covenant and to the Mercy Seat. It's as if they're one unit. In fact, they're so intimately connected that the author of the book of Hebrews says that the altar is actually on the other side of the veil. In the Old Testament, it says it's before the veil. But the guy in Hebrew says that it's inside the veil. Let's listen to that, and then I'll explain it. For a tabernacle was prepared. The first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. That's the holy place. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna. Aaron's rod that budded and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. So he's taken it and put it inside the veil. Is there an error in the Bible? No, the description by the author of Hebrews is not an error. Rather, John Lang explains what is intended. He says, for this reason, we would rather find a theological idea rather than an archaeological error. In that the passage of the epistle to the Hebrews, which puts it in the holy of holies, for this is the altar which by its incense symbolizes the prayer of the high priest. In other words, because the prayers or the incense which is in this altar go through the veil, Technically, it is inside the veil. It's the only thing that goes through the veil every single day. So theologically, he is making an argument that this golden altar is actually inside the veil, even though it's outside the veil. Does everybody understand that? There is no error in the Bible. He's saying that this becomes a part of this. And we saw that in those sermons, how intricately connected they were. If you don't remember that, go back and watch the sermons. As I mentioned in the last sermon, though, there is a play on words occurring, which is provided to give incense into the work of Christ. The veil, or parroquet, comes from the word perek, which means cruelty or rigor. That then comes from an unused root, meaning to break apart or to fracture. In this, we can see where the cruelty or rigor comes into play. On the other side of the veil is the mercy seat, or the caporet, which indicates a satisfaction This comes from the word kafar, which in this situation means to appease or to satisfy. The two words, paroket and kaporet, are spelled with the exact same letters, but the kaf simply moves forward. Kaf is represented by an open hand, and it signifies to open, to allow, or to tame. On one side, there is cruelty and rigor. On the other side, there is mercy or satisfaction. The only thing that would pass through this veil each day would be the smell of incense as it wafted into the air. As Christ is the veil, that is our one means of access to God at this time. It is our prayers mediated by Christ rising to him. So in other words, if you think about it, the golden altar is the prayers of the people. They are already in heaven. That's why he can say that the golden altar is on the other side of the veil. Because of Christ, our prayers are there in the throne of grace. What does it say in Hebrews 9? I think it's Hebrews 9. Let us therefore go boldly to the throne of grace. I might be wrong on Hebrews 9, but it's there in the book of Hebrews. Let us go boldly because we're already there. We're already there because of what Christ has done for us. As a pictorial lesson for us concerning the blood of these animals, both picturing Christ being applied to the mercy seat, which also pictures Christ. We can go to the Gospel of John to see the fulfillment of what is pictured here in Leviticus 16. On the Day of Atonement, the blood was applied on the mercy seat. We saw that a couple verses ago. That was fashioned so that there was a cherubim on each end of it. Everybody remember that? You've got the mercy seat and there's a cherubim. All beaten out of one piece. Okay? The blood would be applied in the middle. In John chapter 20, we read this. But Mary stood outside the tomb weeping, And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head, the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now, when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, and to my God and your God. Mary looked into the tomb, and what did she see? She saw two angels in white, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. A picture was being made of the true mercy seat, where the blood of Christ sprinkled the seed of God's mercy, cleansing those of the earth who come to him through it. The two angels were there, fulfilling the picture given to Moses about 1,500 years earlier. It is in Christ where we are designated or appointed to meet with God. Christ is no random meeting place as if he could be there or somewhere else, nor in Christ is there some random time of meeting as if he may be in or he may not be in. Rather, he is the designated place of meeting. As I said in our first sermon, the Greek translation of the word mercy seat is hilisterion. It is the same word used in the New Testament For the term mercy seat, which is found in Hebrews 9, verse 5, and propitiation in Romans 3, verse 25. Christ is our mercy seat, and he is our place of propitiation. His atoning death is the fulfillment of this ancient rite described now in Leviticus. Feast fulfilled. We have sinned, and now we realize what we have done. We rejected God's offer, the gift he sent to us. We have crucified our Lord, God's perfect son. Together we have rejected the Lord Jesus. But we did it in ignorance, and so there is hope. For us, there is an offering for sin. It is through his blood, atonement, unlimited in scope. Through him, peace is restored, and there can be fellowship again. Thank God for his tender mercies upon us. Thank God for this marvelous thing he has done. Through the cross of Calvary and the death of Jesus, we are whole once again, and the victory is won. Our third thought today is to an uninhabited land. It's verses 20 through 22. Verse 20, and when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place, the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. With the atonement for the priests and the people, as well as the other specific items now accomplished, the attention is now brought back to the living goat. What will happen to it? The words now say that it shall be brought near to serve its intended purpose. Verse 21, Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat, and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. Here the term both hands instead of hand is used. It is unique in all of the sacrifices found in the Old Testament, all of them. This is indicating in the most poignant manner possible that the confession is both for the house of the priesthood and for the common people. He stands as the mediator to confess for all. In this confession are all of the avonot, or iniquities, and all of the pisheham, or transgressions, concerning their Hatotam or sins. This is the full range of sins from the smallest to the greatest, which violate divine law. These were to be placed on the head of this goat. The sins have already been atoned for by the death of the other animals, the bull and the goat for the Lord, but this goat is now considered guilt-laden, and so it is going to be sent away into the wilderness, the abode of Azazel, by the hand of a suitable man. The word used to describe this man here is iti. It is found only this once in the entire Bible, and it signifies a man who stands in readiness. The word comes from the word et, meaning time, and thus he is a timely man, or a man of years and discretion suitable for the task. This man also pictures Christ who, when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. The sins are to be carried back to Azazel, who had enticed them to sin in the first place. This goat bore guilt. This is not at all like the bird of purification from leprosy, where the live bird was released. Nothing there hints that the live bird bore guilt. Rather, it was dunked into the blood of the live bird, symbolizing death, and then it was set free in an open field, symbolizing the resurrection. Do you all remember that? Okay. Here, the first goat, which was slain, represents the sacrifice for sin, Christ's atoning death. The second represents the effect of that sacrifice. They're two sides of the same coin. The sin is completely removed from the people. As the first goat was for the Lord, the second is for Azazel. What the first goat cannot picture because it's dead, the second goat is now used to show that the sin is removed, both of which were accomplished by Christ. This is a truth which is seen in salvation. Christ died for all sins of all people, potentially. Christ died only for those who acknowledge him as their sin bearer, actually. As long as we fail to come to him, the death has no effect, But when we come to him, our sins are removed completely and wholly, la azazel, or for azazel. Verse 22 finishes our verses today. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to an uninhabited land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. This goat, after having the iniquities of the people confessed over it, was then the one to bear all of those iniquities into what the Hebrew calls Eretz Gazara, or a land cut off. The word is used only this one time in scripture, but it comes from the word Gazar, which is used in Isaiah 53, 8, saying the following. And when I read this, I realized what this passage was telling us all the way up until the end. All right, I really struggled with one thing. Now, I've said this. When you go to a sermon, you put all of your presuppositions aside and you say, I'm just going to go where the Lord leads me. And I didn't do that with this sermon because I was pretty sure that I knew what was being pictured. And I struggled that first week, 14 hours on something that probably should have taken eight or nine. And I didn't sleep for two days thinking it through. And then next Monday, 14 hours. And I came to this word, Gazara, and I realized I need to put aside my presuppositions. The passage now makes sense. This was the goat to be taken. Let me read you that from Isaiah 53, first 8. though. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation, for he was cut off. That's the word we're looking at, gazar, from the land of the living. This goat was to be taken to a place completely uninhabited and which was totally severed from the place of the Lord. There were to be no roads or any other identifying ways that would cause this goat to return to the camp of God's people. This is, as the Bible shows quite a few times elsewhere, the haunt of evil spirits. When you see the wilderness, it's the haunt What did Jesus say. You know, the the evil spirit leaves a person and it goes out into arid places looking, you know, for a, a body to take over, whatever. I misquoted that, but you understand. The wilderness is the place of the haunt of evil spirits throughout the Bible. Here we now have an understanding that this goat is being sent to Azazel. This means that Azazel can do no harm to Israel because their sins are forgiven. Instead, he must be content with the goat which has taken Israel's place. A natural translation of Azazel is either one who has separated himself from God or he who has separated himself. It is to Azazel that this goat is sent. The symbolism that we are to see here is that any and all who have confessed their sin over this goat have their sins carried away to a barren place with no hope of them ever returning. You talk about eternal salvation. You talk about once saved, always saved. It's right here in the Bible, in the Old Testament. The sins are gone forever. However, those who do not confess over this goat of removal do not have their sins removed. For them, there's only one place to go. Their sin remains, and they are for Azazel. Thus, there is a time when they, with their sins, will be cast into that barren place from which there is no return. But at that time, it will no longer be barren. The sin of all of history, along with all of the unredeemed of humanity, will be there. It is a place of eternal corruption from which no soul shall ever escape. Such is the cost of being set apart, La Azazel. It is either your sin alone or you with your sin which is heading there. The parting question for us today is, have we received Jesus Christ as our atoning sacrifice? It is he alone who fulfills these many pictures of what we are looking at, and he alone can bring us back home to our Heavenly Father. This will become evident enough in the final verses of the passage and with an evaluation of what everything we have looked at in this chapter means. But maybe we won't make it until next week. There's always that chance that our next day won't come. That's why I showed you that letter from this lady that came in this morning. It isn't the kind of thing that we like to think about, but it is something that we should consider. This is especially so unless we are right with God. And there's only one way that that can happen. We need to have our sins taken care of, and that can only come about through what these verses picture, Christ Jesus. If you've never called on him and have asked him to bear your sin guilt away, it's high time that you do. This is what we're learning in these passages. Now, I'm going to give you a little foretaste of what we're going to see in the next sermon, so when you hear it, you'll remember this. The bowl pictures Christ the replacement for the high priest. The high priest pictures Christ who's doing the high priestly duties, right? We've seen that. The mercy seat is Christ. We have the goat of sacrifice for the people, which is Christ, and we know that because the blood of the two is brought together. Now this second goat is taking away the sins of the people, which the first goat couldn't symbolize because it's already dead. So he's taking away the sins of the people, right? But Christ came back, didn't he? That's why this man, E.T., the timely man, the one who came in the fullness of time, comes back without the goat. Everything points to Christ. There's nothing missing. There's nothing lacking. Everything here points to Christ. So when we get to next week's verses, that will help you unpackage what we're going to go through. It's going to be longer than most sermons. So get your pillow and be ready, okay? (laughs) If you haven't called on Jesus, I would ask you to do it today because everything here pictures Jesus. And God is trying to wake us up to the fact that it is he who we need. Your prayers are not heard. Your fellowship with God is not at all acceptable. Nobody's going to work their way to heaven. Relying on the law of Moses, not eating pork, is only going to separate you further from your God. Why? Because the law condemns. We are free because of Christ, because he fulfilled the law. In Christ, there is now no condemnation. Please call on Jesus if you haven't done so. Please do it. You don't know if this is your last day on this planet. Please do it. Our closing verse comes from Hebrews chapter 9. We're in Hebrews a lot during these sermons, aren't we? Why? Because Hebrews is there to explain exactly what we're looking at, to show us the greater than of Jesus Christ. Here it is. But Christ came as our high priest of the good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, But with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Remember, it says nobody's to go into that place while the high priest is there. There it is right there. Remember, it says that the blood of the bull is to atone for Aaron and the blood of the goat is to atone for the congregation. It's right there. Every single thing that we have seen is right there showing us what Jesus did for us. You know, I was out there working, taking care of my uncle's house yesterday. I'm still cleaning it up after this hurricane. And I was thinking about what Jesus did for us. It is so unbelievable. Now, We say Jesus and we think of, you know, he's physical. He's human. But this is God. This is the God of eternity coming out of the eternal realm and uniting with human flesh. God himself, whose spirit, he doesn't feel pain He doesn't feel agony. He doesn't, there's none of that in him. God is impassionate. Everything about God is. There's no change in God. But when he created this universe for our benefit, he said, I love what I have created so much that I am going to come and I'm going to join to it to redeem it. Because he knew that we would blow it. God himself was willing to say, I'm going to take on pain. I'm going to take on suffering. I'm going to take on rejection of the creatures that I created in order to redeem them. You talk about love. People say, oh, God is a cosmic child abuser. He sent his son to die. That is the shallowest concept of God that I can imagine. We're talking about absolutely pure, perfect love. That he himself would do this. I can't get over it. I just can't get over it. Next week is Leviticus 16, verses 23 through 34. For sure, when these verses are spent, we shall say marvelous things we did see. It's entitled, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Part 3. Thank you. That'll be our 29th Leviticus sermon, all right? The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if you have a lifetime of sin heaped up behind you, he can wash it away, and he can purify you completely and wholly. So follow him and trust him, and he'll do marvelous things for you and through you, okay? Short little poem, and we'll be done. It's entitled, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, same as last week. And Aaron shall bring the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself, so shall he do, and for his house, and shall kill the bull. As a sin offering, which is for himself, as I now instruct you. Then he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from the altar before the Lord, with his hands full of sweet incense beaten fine, and bring it inside the veil, according to this word. And he shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the testimony, lest he die. Pay careful heed to this word. He shall take some of the blood of the bull. And sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side, and before the mercy seat he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times, to this instruction he shall abide. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, bring its blood inside the veil, so shall he complete, do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bull, and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat." So he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions for all their sins of which I am aware of very well. And so he shall do for the tabernacle of meeting as to you I address, which remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness. There shall be no man in the tabernacle of meeting when he goes in to make atonement in the holy place. So do I tell until he comes out that he may make atonement for himself. For his household and for all the assembly of Israel. And he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. In this he shall not falter, and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it all around on the horns of the altar. Then he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times. So to you I tell, "'Cleanse it and consecrate it "'from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. "'And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place, "'please do take careful note, "'the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, "'he shall bring the live goat. "'Aaron shall lay both his hands "'on the head of the live goat, "'confess over it all the iniquities "'of the children of Israel, "'and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, "'putting them on the head of the goat, "'as to you I now tell, "'and shall send it away into the wilderness,' By the hands of a suitable man, pay heed to this address. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to an uninhabited land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. This is something for you to carefully understand. Lord God, you have sent Jesus to atone for sin. We thank you for doing what we could not do. Through him, new life can begin again. And so, O God, we call out through him to you. Hear our cry for mercy upon sinners such as us. Know that we trust in your word and your power to save. We are free from sin's bondage through Jesus. It was for us that his precious life you gave. Hallelujah to you, O God, our voices we raise. Hallelujah to you, O God, we give you all of our praise. Hallelujah and amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we do give you our praise. We thank you for what you were willing to do for us, and it is astonishing indeed. It's hard to grasp all of the detail, all of the the minor points that are found in these verses, and there is some room for debate on them. But in the end, what shouts out from them, regardless of how they're interpreted by different scholars, is Jesus. He is there in each and every single word. He is there calling to us to ask us to just reach out to him and ask him to be our savior. And so we do. It is our hope, it is our joy, it is our highest joy to stand in your presence and to hail you, O God, for all eternity, hailing the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And Lord, we certainly pray for all of the people that we mentioned earlier. We've got Doug and his wife and their puppies and all of the other people on Ireland that are facing a tropical storm. We would pray for them. We pray for Paul, who is not here with us today, that he would be okay. We certainly pray for all of the others, the people in California with their fires raging around them and loss of life and sadness. We would pray that great things would come out of that. Restoration with you and and calling on you and being saved and that people would turn away from their sins. And Lord, we are appalled at the state of the world today. It's a terrible place that we're living in, but there is the chance that even a person like Jerry Brown could be saved. And so we would pray that that would be the case that we would store, restore rightness to his mind and to have him turn away from what he's doing in that state and all the people that are supporting him and that they would turn and call on you. This would be our prayer that none would be lost, but all would come to a saving knowledge of our Lord Jesus. Lord, we ask these things, petitioning you, knowing that you are infinitely wise and these things will be handled according to your wisdom. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.